Amen. So, uh, <clears throat> not this past week, but the week prior, Doreen and I uh, had the opportunity to go to Long Beach, California for the Acts 29 Pastor Spouse Retreat. This is something that we are able to do every year. It's actually mandatory in being part of the network. Uh, they saw years ago that pastors were really a mess, to be quite honest. Uh, they saw massive issues, and they wanted to find a way to invest in their pastors, and even specifically, their pastors' marriages. And so this is kind of the fruit of that. But actually, based on just size and growth, I mean, when they first instituted this, it was like 200 pastors, and now it's like 1,200. So when you think about that kind of growth and an all-expenses-paid trip by the network for their pastors, that cost gets up pretty high really fast. And so they've all recognized that this is the last year of that event as we know it, uh, just based on cost, and so that just is what it is. But what was exciting for us is that we really looked forward to the time to, re- to be refreshed. The Macy's had kind of a wild year. Many of you know we moved, and uh, that took more out of us than we thought. And we've seen a lot of exciting things happen here, and uh, just working together as an elder team, and hiring new staff, and just a lot going on in the life of the church. We found ourselves just kind of tired and exhausted, to be honest, and we craved this time. And uh, what was exciting was not the fact that we were on the West Coast, and by the way, if you're wondering where to go, if you want climactic or climate perfection, you go to the West Coast. No humidity, perfect temperature. You know, I think Syracuse is the greatest city in the world. But nonetheless, uh, I think uh, South, uh, Southern California rivals in its weather. A um, little bit. It's gorgeous. We weren't excited about the weather. Don't be fooled by the selfies. Uh, all the goofy selfies I put out on Facebook. Uh, There was something more that we craved. It was preaching and teaching. Great speaker. It was very word-centered retreat. And we will never forget the 6.30 a.m. prayer times that we had with hundreds of other pastors across the globe. Matter of fact, more specifically, we really enjoyed the prayer time with a pastor from Wales. Less than 1% evangelicalism. So when he's crying out for people to come to faith in Jesus, you get a different sense of brokenness from this man. You follow me? And we all resolved that he should just pray the whole hour just on the basis of his accent. You know, like, the Syracuse accent just wasn't working. When the Welsh guy starts talking, that guy's worth listening to. But really a time of refreshing prayer and the teaching was a reminder of the truths of the gospel for Doreen and I. Because at the end of the day, the last thing we need is our feet in the sand. The last thing we need is a vacation when we're depleted spiritually. We don't need time away, time off. We need Jesus. We need the gospel. We need maybe the, 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 the tangible effect of getting away is that you're able to walk away from all the momentary distractions in life and you just face the Lord. 
for a couple days. And it's in that moment that in the distractions and the craziness of life, you realize that truth and falsehood, lies and the, and, and, and the truth can get intermingled and you can get confused and you can get distracted and you can forget the truth of the gospel. Any of you in that place here this morning? And so today we start a new series called Favorite Text. You're going to hear from the elders some of our favorite texts. Okay? That's it. Simple as that. We're hoping that as we share these favorite texts, that you are refreshed in soul, refreshed in spirit. This is not just a blah, blah series while we prepare for the fall. But this is a time where you get to come face to face with the Lord week in and week out and are refreshed in the truth and all the distractions that entangle themselves in the confusion that we can weed them out with the word of God and re-anchor you in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. So today, my favorite text that I get to pick is 1 Timothy 1, verses 12 through 18. Grab your Bibles. We need the Bible. We need God's Word. I don't care if you're old school or new school. That is, you have leather binding or an application. Grab the Bible. Turn Facebook off. Turn the internet off. Just let it go for a few minutes. And let God's Word have access to your soul to remind you and refresh you. 1 Timothy Chapter 1, verse 12 through 18, and I'll do everything in my power to settle down. (laughs) Tim Bissell always says, man, oh man, when you go away, we're wondering, man, what's going to happen when he comes back? Well, loud preaching happens. (laughs) Let's go to the Lord. Paul says this, his first letter to Timothy after he has exhorted him to remain at Ephesus. You see, Timothy was the elder overseeing the church at Ephesus. And you know, like anywhere you put confused sinners, there's going to be wacky false teaching. And so Paul's not there, and he says to Timothy, Hey dude, stay in Ephesus. Make sure that no weird, wacky, false doctrine gets taught. And then he goes on in verse 12 to say this. Paul says, I thank him... Who's given me strength. Christ Jesus our Lord. Because he judged me faithful. Appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer. Persecutor. An insolent opponent. But I received mercy. Because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, 
immortal, invisible. The only God be honor and glory forever and ever. And all God's people said, Amen. It seems to me that we live in a day and age where the thank you note is kind of a thing of the past. Right? It's something we used to do. Maybe some of you are, you know, like crazy thank you note people. So please be patient with us. But it seems to me that we live in a day and age now where we just kind of drop a thanks, T-H-X text. Thanks. Or maybe if we're really feeling like we're grateful, we'll go online to like some e-card site and send some like silly card that when you click on it, it like bursts out like confetti. Maybe that's more the birthday route, but maybe I'm revealing my late 90s era issues. But um, right, the, the art of the thank you note. We're not prone to send thank you notes. We're not uh, prone to sit down and write out a personalized, like take your time, try to remember how to use cursive kind of letter that expresses our gratitude for someone that's done something very special. Remember when we first started dating, Doreen's writing all these notes. I'm like, what are you doing? She's like, I'm writing thank you notes. I'm like, didn't you just say thank you? Like, can't we save a stamp? She's like, no, this is what you do. Somebody does something, you thank them. I was like, okay, guess I better work on my penmanship, you know. But I think even more so today, beyond the thank you note culture, I think we're actually post-gratitude in culture, right? Whenever we send a text or drop an email, we send a note, it seems to me that we're not really a grateful people, right? We live in a day and age of entitlements for sure. Like, we feel like we deserve things, right? That, why don't I have? This isn't fair. A lot of justice issues. Now, believe me, central to the gospel is a message of justice that God gives to the world. So please hear that. But we feel that it's an injustice if we don't seem to get what we want or what we think we deserve. So gratitude is kind of a thing of the past more than the thank you note, is it not? And yet that's what we see Paul doing. He's starting out in verse 12. I thank him who's given me strength. Christ Jesus, our Lord. Paul is writing a thank you note to Jesus. And he wants all of us to hear. He wants all of us to uh, read this. He wants us to interact with that. He wants us to know what he's thanking Jesus for and why he's thanking him. Paul's grateful. The tone of of this passage is very grateful. A lot of gratitude here, just oozing with gratitude. And Paul thanks him uh, for this. He says, I thank him who has given me strength. Jesus has done something for Paul. He has given him strength. Not only that, uh, the next phrase says, because he judged me faithful. Jesus has looked at Paul and and made a decision that he is faithful. Okay? Going on with this, he says that he's appointing me to his service. That is, Paul is thanking Jesus for his gracious initiative and and, um, um, interaction with his life. Jesus is active. He's acting mercifully and graciously in his life. 
And so Paul is thanking Jesus for that. He's given me strength. He's judged me faithful or considered me to be faithful. He's anointing me for his service. So Paul is thanking Jesus for who he is and what he has done in his life. But to deepen his gratitude, and I think that's, it's a helpful thing for us to see, to deepen his gratitude, he's also considering who he was. He's not only thanking Jesus for who he is and what Jesus has done, but he's thanking Jesus for what he has done, given the fact, uh, given what he knows about who he was. It's astounding. It's shocking to Paul. His, his gratitude for God is deepened as he thinks about the kind of man that he once was. And I wonder today if there's somebody here that has forgotten who Jesus is, what Jesus has done, and not only that, if they have forgotten where they came from. They've forgotten their spiritual heritage. They've forgotten their roots. They forgot who they really were. Maybe living in a state of pride or haughtiness about their their spiritual state and they forgot who they really were paul does not forget thus the gratitude he says though formerly i was a blasphemer a persecutor insolent opponent he knows who he was many of you may remember the story of saul who then became paul Right, a blasphemer, hostile to Jesus. If there's anyone that hated Jesus, it was Saul and hated his followers and did everything that he could to stop the spread of the name, to stop the spread of Christianity. His whole life was oriented to hostility to Jesus Christ, the spread of his name, the proclaiming of any message of hope that was related to what he did. Remember, he was going to Damascus to take Christians to prison. He was there when when Stephen was stoned, and Stephen was literally at his feet. Do you remember this about Saul? Yeah, so, so Saul, or I should say Paul at this time, is not overstating who he was. He has a clear understanding of his former identity. This is who I was. I was a blasphemer. I was a persecutor. I was an insolent opponent. My whole life was postured against Jesus. And yet I'm thanking him today. Why? Look at that next phrase. But I receive mercy. But I receive mercy. Paul's story is a a story of the mercy of God. Look at the phrase coming up. The grace of our Lord overflowed for me. He's thanking Jesus. Right? He's given him strength. He's judged him faithful. He's appointing me to his service. He poured out his mercy. His grace overflowed to Paul. Right? These 
this, this appointing, this, this giving of strength, this judgment of faithfulness, all of those are just simply acts of mercy in the life of Paul on the basis of who he was. That's what Jesus does. He shows mercy to the one that deserves it the least in many ways, as we should look at it. That, that something radically different has happened to Saul, who's become Paul. That Jesus showed up in his life and poured out his mercy. That his new standing before God was not on the basis of his merit. And as we know in Philippians 3, Paul lays out, listen, if there's anyone that had a spiritual resume, guess what? It was me. But that's all rubbish in relationship to God. But the thing that really matters is the reception of the mercy of Jesus. That that's what's changed Paul, I'm sorry, Saul into Paul. That mercy makes all the difference of the world. Grace is the deciding factor of whether or not you are in reconciled relationship to God. And while this is a story that, that shows us what happened to Paul, I think it's a a story that happens to all of us. It becomes a pattern of salvation. This is how we're saved. This is how God moves in our heart. Our lives are maybe in less dramatic fashion. Maybe we're not dragging off Christians and trying to drag them into prison. But our whole life is oriented and orchestrated against the Lord Jesus Christ in our sin. And Jesus pours out his infinite mercy in grace into our lives so that it changes us. It restores us back into relationship with Him. Even those people who are so far from God that we could never anticipate or imagine them ever knowing God. And Jesus just shows up mercifully and graciously. This is my story. This is why I love this passage. It explains my life. It makes sense out of the silliness and the confusion of growing up as a young kid, trying to figure out who I was, trying to understand, is there anyone out there that accepts me and loves me for who I am? Not really a solid question per se, but is there anyone that loves me, accepts me, and on what basis would they? Who am I? What am I doing in this world? And I remember being so angry and confused in this inner turmoil going on inside my heart, even as a young boy. And when I heard about Christ, when I heard about mercy, it just took root in my heart. Why? I don't understand it. It doesn't, I can't give it logic. It just occurred where Jesus, in his love and in his mercy and in his grace, poured it out abundantly into my heart, and I began to see him for who he was, and I began to see myself for who I really am. Does anyone remember that moment? That's why I love this passage. It brings me back to my roots. Yeah, even though you once were that, I receive mercy. The grace of the Lord Jesus was poured out on me along with the faith and the love that are in Christ Jesus, an initiative of God to bring me into relationship with Him. 
And really, this points to the larger story, because it's not really about Paul. It's not about Mike Maisie, and it's not about you individually at the end of the day. It's about what God set out to do in Jesus Christ. That's another reason why I love this passage, because it just says it plainly. It's a radical truth, but it brings together all of this, all of our stories, brings so much purpose and meaning behind it, and it's very simple. Here is a trustworthy statement that deserves full acceptance. Paul's story, my story, your story. Here's where it comes from. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Let that truth just grab a hold of you today. Christ Jesus. No one else. Christ Jesus. He came into the world. He did not stay on his throne in heaven enjoying the glory of the Father that he had throughout all eternity. He did not stay there. He laid it down. And he entered into our existence. Took on human flesh. He came into the world for this purpose, to save sinners. Not pat religious people on the back and say, hey, I came to give you your trophy. Great job. You attended church 98.9% during your life. Congratulations. Here's your medal. That's not why Jesus came into the world, to pat uh, super uh, spiritual superstars on the back. That's what the Pharisees were expecting. That's what Paul expected to some degree. I don't want to overstate their understanding of what God was doing and how they saved. But that's not what it was. Christ Jesus came in the world to save sinners. I came what to seek and save that which was lost. It's not the healthy that need a doctor, but the sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. The words of Christ. He came to call sinners. Sinners like Paul. Sinners like me. Sinners like you. Even the worst of sinners are in reach of the mercy of God unto salvation. Don't miss that. You may feel like you're too far gone. Your sins, your identity is so warped and abused and distorted and affected by sin that you may feel that you're so far gone that God's mercy and righteousness and his love and his grace for you that it couldn't really reach there. That you're out of bounds. That there's no hope for you that God would never want to share his mercy, his righteousness with someone like you. You're too far gone. Your sins are too real. Your pain is too intense. But the truth of the gospel is, is that even the worst of sinners, no matter how far you've gone, you are not too far for the reach of Christ. That's why I love this passage. It creates a category for a sinner like me. It says that Christ's mercy 
and His grace stretches far enough to reach me, far enough, enough to reach Paul, and far enough to reach you. There's no sin too powerful for the all-powerful mercy of Christ. Amen? I'm rambling. I'm going to bring it in. The question becomes why? Why would God do this? Even the worst, the foremost sinners, someone like Paul, someone like me, someone like you, why would God do this? Two reasons. One is almost the ultimate reason. The other one is the ultimate reason. Okay? Look at what he says. Verse 16. But I received mercy for this reason. That in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience. As an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. So what we see here is that recipients of mercy become instruments of mercy. That what God does in us, God does for us, what God does to us, God, what? Does through us. Is if it wasn't crazy enough that God saves sinners as wretched as us. Now he's going to use those saved sinners... To put on display his patience for the world to see. You see, there's a purpose behind him saving really bad people like you and me. Because the worst, quote unquote, the worst sinners become the, quote unquote, best displays of mercy. That it's, yes, we must receive the mercy of Jesus Christ. I think that's an immediate application today. What am I supposed to do, Mike? Receive the mercy of Jesus. Stand upon his mercy and his grace. Bring no merit to the table in your fight and battle against sin. Stand in the mercy of Jesus. Receive it. Ask for it. Be merciful to me, O God. And receive it. But then represent it. Literally, re-present that to the world. Jesus, it's almost like you're seeing this thing taking place in, in the divine wisdom of God that I can't fully understand. I'm sure there could have been a better way, Lord, for you to carry out your purposes in the world. But you're God, so okay, we submit to you. But here's what we see happening. God pours out his mercy and his grace into the life of a sinner. That sinner, by faith, receives that mercy and grace. And then as as they receive it, truly, they begin to represent that grace 
and that mercy for other people to see. Which is an instrument now for other people to what? Receive that grace by faith. That this is the instrument, the means by which God saves more sinners. Through Christ, as presented in and through the lives of his people changed by mercy. That's why you're putting on display the very nature of God in how you live. That's why we talk about this all the time. We need to talk about it more. That's what formation groups are all about. That's what missional communities are all about. Equipping every person here to, who is standing on the mercy of Jesus to respond to that mercy by representing it. Re- representing that mercy in their pursuit of God in the word and in their prayer life. If God has done all that is necessary for us to have relationship with him, guess what we should be doing every single moment and surely daily? Pursuing God in relationship. That's why Christ died, to bring us to God. We have relationship with God. It changes our relationships with other people. The way we treat our spouses, our bosses, the fruit of the Spirit begins to flow out and it confounds the world. We begin to share our grace story. We begin to serve other people. People's needs begin to matter to us. That's what representing grace looks like. That we're not too busy. No, sorry, let me check my calendar. No, I'm not available for someone else for six weeks because I'm so busy. We're not so structured to meet our own personal goals that we're not available to other people. You see, Christians are like, they're ready every single day to make themselves available to the needs of others because that's what grace does. That's the overflow of grace. That's what grace looks like tangibly. Not to mention how we use our time and our talent and the money in our pocket. That we're the kind of people that are ready, willing, can't wait for somebody in need so that we can sacrificially, yes, at personal loss, enter into their issue and struggle and meet that need to the best of our ability to the glory of God. We're willing to lay down our wallets for the mission of God to save sinners. We're willing to display grace in whatever way that we can find. Like our greatest joy is, listen, I I just want to live in a way that, that people see the mercy and grace of Jesus in every conversation, every interaction, every financial transaction, every moment of my time. It becomes an all-inclusive, constant reality that grace and mercy are the defining principles that we've received and that we give to other people. That's why we're saved. Not just to have a get-out-of-hell-free ticket in our wallet someday when we approach the pearly gates. We're saved by grace so that people can interact with that very grace every single time they interact with our lives. How can that sink in to my heart?
That's why God saved us. To put his grace in us. That he might reveal his grace through us. Some of us need to repent of living our lives in a different fashion. Some of us need to run into the merciful arms of Jesus and just confess, Lord, how I've not represented your grace and mercy in my life or in this situation. Forgive me, God. Run into his arm. He will, a broken spirit and a contrite heart, he will what? Not despise. But he's given us his grace that he might give more of it. That is, God is going to use his people to save people. That's why we're in North Syracuse, renovation. Right? And our gathering together should be a drinking of, a partaking of, an integration of nothing more, nothing less than the mercy and the grace of Jesus Christ to save us and sanctify us in our walk with Him. And then the minute we walk out these doors, every footprint in the sand of the suburbs will be marked by grace. The grace, the mercy, the love, the truth of Christ. So that God saves sinners. Amen? And then we see the ultimate reason why God does anything. See, I think we have to have an understanding that God gets what he wants. He's saving people. Someone say amen to that. God is saving sinners in the world. I'll tell you what, we get stuck in Northeast America, we start thinking, man, we are in the spiritual abyss. God is absent from the world. Man, do we need a revival across the world. That is a true statement. But I'm telling you right now, as Dwight Smith has taught us on a number of occasions, there are more people that have come to faith in the last 30 years than the people that came to faith the previous 2,000 years. There is a revival across the world where the Spirit of God is at move in the hearts of men, women, and children throughout the globe. Don't forget that. God is saving sinners through the preaching and the representing of grace in, in the people of God. He's doing it. And you know what the ultimate effect is? The ultimate effect that he wants. The ultimate effect that he deserves from Paul, from Mike Maisie, from renovation, and from all six billion people that live on this planet. You know what he deserves? Worship. God desires to be worshipped. Not to us, O Lord. Not to us. But to your name be the glory. 
God longs to be worshipped. He made us for worship. Our greatest joy is found when we're worshipping Him, not ourselves. And so Paul moves from thank you note. I thank Him, Jesus. And he moves to doxology. He moves to worship. He's thoughtful of what God has done in his life through Jesus. He's thinking and meditating upon the mercy and the grace of God. Are you this morning? And he can't help but end the sentence. With resounding praise to the living God. He says, to the king of the ages. That's who Jesus is. The king of the ages. All ages. Jesus is our king. Immortal. Invisible. The only God. Jesus is the only God who saves Sinners effectively and sufficiently. Jesus is the only God. There is no other God but Jesus. If you're looking for someone to rely on in worship, to celebrate, it's Jesus. No one else. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God. Be honor and glory. Forever and ever, and all God's people said, joining with Paul, amen. Worship. Receiving grace. Representing grace. So that God receives the glory that is due His name. And when I think about that cycle that is increasing progressively leading us to Revelation 22, the end of the ages. When I think about that and I look at this passage, it's my favorite because for me it just explains everything. It puts everything in context. Christ Jesus came in the world to save sinners. Really bad ones, like Paul, like me, like you. Like every man, woman, and child across the globe, they're hearing and responding to the gospel throughout the ages. He's doing that to put on display, as Dwight says often, on the canvas of history. He's painting with every stroke grace, grace, mercy. So that someday when we all get to look at what God has done throughout the ages, when even uh, Satan gets to look and see And the powers and principalities all look at. And all that they see is, this is what God did. And we all get to celebrate and enjoy and and dance and laugh and sing and praise. And do all that goes in with celebrating what God has done by His grace throughout history. Just brings everything together for me. And I'll tell you... It refreshes the soul to go here. 
Some of you today are depleted in soul, depleted in spirit. You've forgotten the simple truths of the gospel, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. You forgot who Jesus is. You forgot who you once were. You can't even fathom the kind of radical transformation that God has secured for you because of his grace throughout the last 10, 20, 30 years of your life. And you are so caught up in the moment of nine to five living that you're detached from the grandiose story that your life is participating in. Jesus saving work. I never get upset when I think about the gospel. I never get discouraged when I contemplate the cross and, and the incarnation and the, and, the, and, the, and the resurrection. You know when I get bummed out when I'm consumed with nine to five living, when I'm trying to just execute a list of tasks. And that is my modus operandi. But imagine if the gospel comes in and just reframes everything, brings context and explanation to life. I hope that's what happened today. Let me shoot straight. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ, go to him for salvation. Go to him for mercy and pardon. Don't leave the room without the assurance that you are a recipient of divine mercy for salvation. Let me plead with you. If he saved me, he can save you. And if you're here today and you're a recipient, be reminded in such a way that you represent it to others. And let's all praise God, amen? You know, we say, well, worship is life. Of course it is. Worship is life. But you know what? Worship is also standing up. Come on, band. Standing up and singing. It's okay to celebrate in song. Worship is also praying. Worship is also verbalizing what you are enjoying in the nature of God. So let's stand together. We're going to sing a song. We're going to worship God. We're going to celebrate what He's done. Then we're going to have communion. We're going to sing a little bit more. And then we're going to sing all week. We're going to worship all week based on grace. That sound good? Thanks for your patience and my overexcitement this morning. Thank God for the air conditioning, huh? Let's pray. God, we come to you in Christ's name. There's so much more to say, in some ways so much less to say, but yet... God, we're just sinners. We're not pretending to be something we're not. Don't put on a show here this morning. We've got it all together. We don't. We humbly confess our sin. We cry out together for mercy. No matter where we are in the faith spectrum, we're people that live and move and drink and are filled by the mercy and the grace of Christ. Our relationship with you is founded on that covenant of grace. May we celebrate it today. In Jesus' name, amen.